You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Well, today we're going to be talking about the hope that we have in Christ, the hope of the resurrection. In a world that is extremely uncomfortable with death, in a world that doesn't really know exactly what it thinks about death, uh, we're going to talk about the Christian story and what it has to say about our hope for the future. So would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be. We're going to start at verse 42. The words won't be behind me on a screen, so use a phone or a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to buy you a Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability. This mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and the mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I die, when I die, I want to go in my sleep like my great-grandfather and not screaming in terror like the passengers in his car. (laughs) That is a terrible joke by Will Rogers. I didn't write it. And it works for a variety of reasons, in large part because we like the beginning of it. We like the idea that death will be peaceful. We like the idea that it will be around people we love, and hopefully a long time from now, a very long time from now. In fact, statistically speaking, 80% of us Imagine death some point in the future, never with a timeline, and always surrounded by family and friends at home 
And the word always, the words the peaceful always pops up in the statistics, 80% of us. We like the idea that death is kind of like an old friend, that death can be a good thing. But we also know that in our world, if you want death to be far away, the only way really to get access to that is through doctors and medicine, which means, statistically speaking, 80% of us will actually die in hospitals or nursing homes surrounded by medical professionals attached to machines and with a variety of drugs coursing through our bodies because we want death to be something we struggled against. We don't want death to be something we just casually accept. We don't want death to be peaceful. We want to push it away. And we believe both of those things simultaneously. Mutually exclusive ideas about death and the end of our lives at the same time. We also think that it would be great if death is far in the future, that we don't have to experience it, we don't really have to think about it. While at the same time believing that if we think about death all the time, it'll create a wisdom in us, it'll create an urgency in us, it'll teach us to squeeze every last drop out of life, it'll teach us to carpe diem, we'll, we'll make the most of our lives if we're aware that time is short. So death gives meaning to life. Meanwhile, death also just sort of is something we don't want to experience ever. And we believe all of these ideas at exactly the same time. How do we do that? Because we avoid thinking about death as much as possible. We are extremely uncomfortable with the idea. You're extremely uncomfortable because I keep saying the word death. We would rather I use euphemisms like passed on or the late such and such or kick the bucket or buy the farm. If you ever want to know if a society is uncomfortable with something, look at the number of euphemisms they have to avoid saying the actual word. Think about one of the most common, common science fiction horror films, zombies. Dead bodies that come to attack other people. We do not know what to do with death, and the Christian story makes it really clear. We don't know what to do with death. We have no idea. We don't understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is that you and I, you and I, even though we die, will never be dead. Even though we die, we will never be dead. That is what Paul is talking about all through this passage of Scripture. He's talking about the resurrection. Not the resurrection of Jesus, though that comes up. He's talking about the resurrection of you. He's talking about the resurrection of you. He's saying that because of Jesus, because Jesus came back from the dead, you and I have a crazy idea, a truly crazy claim as Christians, that your body, which will go into a grave, will walk back out of it. And that changes everything. That changes everything about the way that we live our lives. That changes everything about the way that we treat other people. That should change everything, and it should absolutely affect us in a season where the whole world is anxious and afraid of death, where the whole world for a, a year has just been terrified of a disease because, again, we don't really know what to do. Modern science will tell you that the, the human being is a healthy thing, right? And that death is the limit of health, which means that anything you do to keep a person alive, even a couple of minutes longer, is by definition healthy even if it doesn't always look healthy to us. So Paul here is talking about a very different understanding of death. Death viewed in light of who God is. Life viewed in light of who God is. And to talk about that means you have to talk about life after death. You have to talk about the resurrection. You have to talk about the kingdom of God. So verses 44 to 49 of the passage we just read, and you can look at them. He goes back to Genesis. And the thing that you really need to hear about this particular section, death is not natural. Death is not normal. Death is not your friend. Death is not a good thing. And I know that sometimes we hear that, and that sounds nice. 
But that is what the Bible would tell you. Death is not natural, normal, it is not a good thing. And then he goes back to the beginning, to Genesis, the very first part of the Bible, where God is making all things, where God makes the world with a word. And then God forms us, the first people, out of the dust of the earth. In the image of God, he created the male and female he created them. God made the first man, it says, out of the dust. And we bear the image of the man of dust. He's talking about Adam there, the reversal of Genesis. That's one of the things that happens in this story. We agree with modern science and modern medicine that fundamentally human beings are designed not to die. That fundamentally human beings are built for eternity. That there's something in us that God has always wanted to keep around forever. And it's one of the reasons that death always feels like it's stealing from us. Even the best deaths, and there are good deaths and bad deaths, even the best funerals, even when you're sitting with people you love and they've had a great long life, it still feels like it's ending too soon. It still feels like someone is taking from you, like someone is robbing you. You know what I mean? Yeah? There we go. This is absolutely something we feel, and the reason for that is ultimately that God didn't make us with death in mind. God made us to be in a relationship with him. That was always the goal. And so God, when he makes all things, makes the world and makes us and gives us a vocation in the world, makes us from the dust of the earth that we would have this tight relationship with creation, this really good vocation in the midst of all the things that God has made. And God gives us the world as a gift, and then we respond to God in worship. We give back to God what we've been given, and then God gives us more life, and then we respond back to God in worship. And this is kind of a cycle that's built into creation. And there's one thing in the garden that God doesn't give us as a gift, and humanity takes it. And when we take it, sin enters the picture. There's this disobedience with God. When we take it, we cut off a relationship with God. God, who is the only being that is actually eternal. There's nothing fundamentally eternal about you or me. We need a relationship with a God who is constantly giving us life and who we're constantly responding to in worship. And so the instant that gets cut off, when we say we don't need you for life, we don't need you for humanity, we're, we can live life with reference just to ourselves, death enters the picture as well. And all of this kind of adds up to a word, sin, and another word, the fall. And so in Genesis 3, we talk about this the big theological idea of the fall, but you see that everywhere around you all the time. The idea that sin is present in the world. And so we're going to talk about two kinds of sin really quickly, a capital S sin and lowercase s. Capital S sin is the experience of every human being on the face of the earth. Lowercase s sins are things that you do that are bad. Okay. So when sins, lowercase s, when those are things that we're doing, those are things like um, uh, speeding on the freeway or eating things that you probably shouldn't be eating or just callousness, when you see on the news that someone's being blown up and you turn the channel because it's kind of annoying to you. It's also things that get a little bit worse, like when we lie to each other, or when we cheat on our taxes, or when we hit people, or when we look at pornography, or we engage in affairs, and then the list gets worse and worse and worse and worse. There are lots of different kinds of sins. You have your sins, I have my sins. Sins are a symptom of sin, the capital S. So while humanity was designed, in theory, to be healthy, the truth is we would say that the regular state of humanity is sickness all the time. And the fruit of that sickness will always be death in every human being forever. So sin is the disease. Sins are the symptoms. So you and I have this broken relationship with God. That's the capital S sin. That there's this inner brokenness that we all experience, this brokenness with each other that's been around since the beginning of the world. This thing that we're always experiencing that when you look around you go, man, wars seem to happen like an awful lot in human history and no one seems to think war is a good idea. War is something that we all dislike, and yet we're all pretty much committed to it all the time. 
We think, well, those people probably deserve it, right? That happens immediately in us, even if we're fairly peaceful people. Sin. And human beings are born colored by this capital S sin. Just born twisted and broken. Still with the image of God in us. Still dearly and deeply loved by God. Still valuable and loved by God. But fundamentally broken from the beginning. My children are people I did not teach to lie to me. Why would I? They're weirdly good at lying to me. My children are people I did not teach to hit each other. Why would I? They figured it out really fast. Now, this, think about this. About as quickly as they learn to speak, they learn to lie. About as quickly as they learn to move, they learn to hit each other. There's something really wrong with humanity that at some level we seem fundamentally broken in a very real way. The way that I look like my parents, the way that you look like your parents, we all look like Adam and Eve. We all bear the image of the man of dust, the woman of dust. We all bear the image of our first parents. We're tainted and colored by this in a very real way. What we need is a savior. What we need is someone who both shares our condition and doesn't share our condition, who is both a part of Adam and Eve's story and also not a part of Adam and Eve's story. We need a reset. We need a redeemer. We need someone who is like us but not like us. Jesus. So Jesus comes as one exactly like us, who shares both the capital S sin and yet doesn't seem to share any of the other sin. And somehow in the midst of his death on the cross, he breaks the power of sin in our lives, and in his resurrection, we get access to that power. We get this real possibility of being healed of a fundamental disease in our lives, capital S sin. And those of us who follow Jesus still find that sins are around. We still are dealing with the symptoms, the after effects of this disease, these terrible old habits of another way of life. But that God has done something fundamental in us at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you and I are told that not just this relationship with God can be restored, but also this, this new kind of life is possible. That we can bear the image of Jesus Christ in the same way that we bear the image of Adam and Eve. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. As was the man of heaven, as is the man of heaven, so will be those who are of heaven. That's what it says. That you and I have this possibility of a brand new kind of life. A life that goes beyond the grave. A life that in some ways does look exactly like a good death. This idea of like a peaceful thing in death. This, this sort of moment where, where things can really fundamentally change for us. Not the kind of death where we're sort of always fighting our own bodies. Because that's really what modern medicine teaches us to do, to fight our own bodies that are sort of with decay built into them. So Paul starts talking about this in the first four verses, 42 to 44, and then again he picks it up at 50. This idea that you and I will get a new kind of body. And he keeps using this word, sown. So he says, what is sown in dishonor is raised in honor. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown ugly comes back beautiful. And the reason he keeps using that verb, sown, is that just before this, he was using a metaphor of seeds being planted in the ground. Because the people he's talking to in Corinth are really spiritual people. They're really, and they love, they love this kind of spiritual experience with God, and they think of the resurrection as this great metaphor, that what God really, God just loves us, and that someday what's going to happen is God is going to take our souls out of our bodies and take us out of this dirty and broken world and take us to some spiritual place where we can all be really spiritual people together. And that is not at all what happens, Paul says. God loves the world that he made. God loves us as people that he made. So what's actually going to happen is that God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. That this great good creation God loves will be renewed and restored. That the great heaven that we know will come much closer to earth. And that you and I will live in a world that is both exactly the same and wildly different from the world that we know. We will be in bodies that are both exactly the same and wildly different from the bodies that we know. Much the same way, he would say, like, a, like an acorn goes into the ground and an oak tree comes up. 
That's the same thing, but it's a wildly different thing. I mean, you put the acorn in the ground and it comes up big. You put something weak in the ground and it comes out strong. You put something that looks dead into the ground and it comes out very much alive. The new creation will be like that. In some way that we don't understand, the new earth will be like that. The new heaven will be like that. It goes and then somehow comes out differently. Your body will be like that. My body will be like that. It will go into the ground like a seed. It will come out of the ground like a brand new thing. But you will absolutely, on the other side of death, have a body. You, on the other side of death, will have a restored, renewed body. And we know this in part because we look at Jesus. Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is incarnate, and then on the other side of the resurrection, still has a body. He's not some disembodied spirit. He's not some ghost floating around. He is real and tangible to the point that Mary and Martha can hug him. Real and tangible, but somehow able to go through locked doors. Real and tangible in a body so that Thomas can stick a finger in the hole in his side, which is a much grosser story than anyone seems to realize. I can't imagine what exactly that was. So still the same body and yet somehow a fundamentally different body. A body that was sown in weakness but raised in power. Sown in dishonor but raised in glory. Sown in one way mortal but coming back immortal. Putting on imperishability, no longer destructible in the way that it once was. Bodies as they were always meant to be. Bodies as modern science and modern medicine can never make them to be. Bodies that don't wear out. We genuinely believe, we genuinely believe that people who are crippled now will not be at the resurrection. People who are blind now will not be at the resurrection. This is a beautiful thing. We genuinely believe that those who've had hip replacements now will have new hips in the resurrection. We genuinely believe that those who are crippled by arthritis now will not be in the resurrection. Those who were born too young and died too young will not be in the resurrection. We genuinely believe that those who die old will come back as the same body, but a fundamentally different body in the resurrection, able to run and jump, jump and dance again, and do things that maybe they couldn't do before, that no one's been able to do before, the way Jesus seems to be able to do. That you and I will have new bodies in the resurrection, that we will know our loved ones healed in the resurrection, that we will be able to move and do things that we always should have been able to do in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul is talking about, this amazing good news. This incredible good news that the people you've lost are with Jesus, that the people we love don't disappear. They go to be with Jesus. This is the hope that we have. And we live in a culture that's terrified. You know people who are terrified of death. They think it's the end. They think it erases all meaning, and they should. Death has always been, always been the enemy of humanity. Always. The idea that death gives life meaning is just a lie. Death does not give life meaning. Death has always stolen things from us. It is truly the enemy of human beings. It is always trying to wipe the memory of us off the face of this planet. And people say, well, no, it gives me meaning. It reminds me to spend time with my kids. Death will take your kids. It, it gives me meaning. It tells me I need to accomplish a lot with my life. Death will wipe your life off the face of this earth. There is no human being, no matter how great, no matter how amazing, that history will not eventually forget. There is no life so meaningful that it makes it beyond the grave, with one exception. Jesus. And I'm moved by that. That only the life of Jesus manages to make it through death, unscarred and still scarred in some very real way. And so you and I, we have this weird problem. For a long time, the way we were built to be, 
was to be people who received things from God and responded to God. This, this incredible gift that we've been given, that God teaches us how to be alive, that God teaches us how to love. God teaches us in much the same way that I teach my kids how to write. They have a pencil in their hand, I grab the hand and I show them how to make letters. Because God loved, I learn how to love. Because God reasons, I learn how to reason. Because God creates, I learn how to create. That's the way we were always built to be. But there's a problem because of sin. There's a problem because of the fall that you and I are fundamentally broken. So death looks like the end for us because that's the way humanity has always learned to be. That's always been the end of our story. So what we need, C.S. Lewis says, is for God to do something he does not know how to do. Unfortunately, we now need God's help in order to do something which God in his own nature never does at all. To surrender. To suffer. To submit and to die. So the one road for which we need God's leadership, most of all, is a road that God, in his own nature, has never walked. But what if God became a man? What if God became one of us and entered death for us? And very much like the Greeks invading Troy, like a Trojan horse in his own body, what if God filled death with his life so that death lost all of its power? What if God defeated death on its own turf? What if God walked into a grave and walked back out and showed us all the way out? That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. In verse 54 and 55, right? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. He says that early in 1 Corinthians 15. The, the enemy, death, is going to be destroyed. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? We're going to mock death on the other side of the resurrection. We're going to sing the song of Hosea. That's what Paul says. A couple of months ago, there was a, my kids and I and some people, we were playing outside, and a bee stung somebody. And this was just terrifying, right? Because you're little, and suddenly you find out that something the size of a fly is just dangerous. And it's flying, and it's not like a casual thing, right? It's armed. And you just, you suddenly discover this, and, and so there's a little kid crying like they've just been stabbed, which they have by a very small thing. And they don't really know what to do. And the bee's still kind of flying around, and it's still like on the ground, and they can see it. And they're like, the bee, the bee is going to get us. And you're a, you're a dad, and you're having to explain, actually, the bee can't touch you anymore. The bee, the bee like, it, it used everything that it has. It, it fired all of the bullets. The bee only has the stinger, right? And when the stinger sticks in, there's a barb, and the barb sticks the stinger in. And the fun thing about bees and the way that they're built is that the stinger is attached to your intestines and your stomach and your muscles and quite a bit of your nervous system. So when you sting somebody, you just get disemboweled. That's exactly what's happened to death, Paul says. That's exactly what's happened. We get to mock death as it gets its innards ripped out of its insides. That the sting of death got stuck in Jesus and death has no power anymore. We get to mock death from now on. And so when people say like, well, but death, death is the end. Death is the, the, no, the sting of death is gone. Death already stung Jesus. We can mock death. We can laugh at death. Death has no power for us anymore. You and I will go into a grave and we will come out the other side. You and I will lie down in the ground and we will sprout back up like great massive oak trees. The same and somehow fundamentally different. And this should, of course, change everything about the way that we live our lives. Everything about the way that we live our lives. You can see, in some ways, why some of the attitudes about death in our culture make sense. Right? The idea that, that we would live life in light of eternity, that we'd live life in light of the fact that our, our time on earth is limited, because we know that some of it's going to make it through to the other side. We don't know how exactly, but if you realize there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, 
then it's very possible that things that we love, not just people that we love, but stuff like the Grand Canyon, might make it through to the other side. It's very possible, actually, that great works of art will make it through to the other side. It's very possible that some of these things, in ways that we don't quite understand, will go into the ground and come back out in brand new ways. So that remarkable works of architecture and really great medical advances and brilliant work that teachers do in people's lives may make it through to the other side of the resurrection, that everything that we do may actually matter because God isn't trying to save us from our bodies. God isn't trying to save us from creation. God plans to redeem and restore and raise us from the dead. God plans to make a new heavens and a new earth and bring us all together to enjoy them the way that Adam and Eve once did, but even better. Because we will share the image not of the people of death, but of the man of heaven. And this is incredible good news, and it changes the way we live every day of our lives. So here's a video I want to show you about your life uh, in jelly beans. These are roughly 28,835 jelly beans. I counted out 500 of them and used those to weigh the rest. In this pile, there's one jelly bean for each day that the average American will live. You might have more beans in your life, or maybe less, but on average, this is the time we have. Here's a single bean. It's your very first day. A special day, but kind of a rough day on everyone involved. Add 364 more and you have the first year of your life. Now, for a sense of scale, here are your first 15 years, 5,475 days, which brings us to the threshold of adulthood. And at that moment, this is the time that we have left. And this is, on average, what we will do with all that time. We will be asleep for a total of 8,477 days. If we're lucky, some of that time we'll be sleeping next to someone we love. We will be in the process of eating, drinking, or preparing food for 1,635 days. We'll be at work, hopefully doing something satisfying, for the equivalent of 3,202 of those days. 1,099 days will be spent commuting or traveling from one place to another. Maybe a little bit more if you live in L.A. On average, we will watch television in one form or another for a total of 2,676 days. Household activities, like chores and tending to our pets and shopping, will take another 1,576 days. And we will care for the needs and well-being of others, our friends and family, for 564 days. We'll spend 671 days bathing, grooming, and doing all other bathroom-related activities. And another 720 days will go to community activities, like religious and civic duties, charities, and taking classes. After we remove all those beans, this is what remains. This is the time that we have left. Time for laughing, swimming, making art, going on hikes, text messages, reading, checking Facebook, playing softball, maybe even teaching yourself how to play the guitar. So what are you going to do with this time? Uh, at some level, that's probably created by people who have no view of the resurrection, who would say that that's actually all the time that we really have left, all the time that in our lives that really matters. And what you and I would say is that on the other side of death, we find that there's actually an infinite amount of jelly beans, which is amazing because it sounds delicious, but amazing because in some way what that really means is that God will do more and more and more with us each and every day on the other side of our death, our life after death. But the question is, what are we doing now that makes it into eternity? That, I think, is a huge question. What are we doing now that makes it to the other side of the resurrection. At some level, you and I are building the kind of person we are going to be in the kingdom of God. 
We believe that there is real continuity between who we are now and who we will be later. That's what Paul says. And so when he gets to the very end of this passage of Scripture, he does what he always does. Good theology really leads to a way of living your life. Therefore, beloved, this is verse 58, Therefore, beloved, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know that unlike so many people who live their lives with no view of eternity, that there's actually something that makes what you do valuable, that makes what you do precious, that actually guarantees that what you do in life may last forever. And is this huge gift that we get from God, this huge gift that we respond to in worship in so many different ways. And so the question, my friends, is what will we do with the hope of the resurrection? Would you pray with me?